Well, welcome to Safe Haven. My name is Troy Nicholson. Um, I'm one of the teaching pastors here. Very glad that you're here with us today as we continue our journey through Luke. We pick Luke back up. And so I want to say this. Last week, um, uh, we, we focused one week on gratitude. There was a miscommunication that it was about parenting. It really wasn't about parenting. It was about gratitude. <laughs> And it was, the Lord showed up and showed all out, and it was incredible. Um, so I implore you, please, go to the website, check that out. See what's going on as we looked at gratitude. If you missed it, please go and, and see uh, how gratitude is the very means by which the Lord has made our families to stay secure. And so we processed through that. We'd love for you to check that out. And also, um, a little buzz phrase came out of that. Um, inhale gratitude, exhale thanksgiving. And um, as alluded to, we have wristbands. <laughs> and so just as to maybe help remind you, if you're into these kind of, they're available for you. Uh, we have two sizes. We have, this says youth size. It just basically means smaller wrist size. That's me. I'm a smaller wrist guy. Um, so there's this. And then there is, for all of you real adults, um, there's, adult size as well. Uh, But they just simply say, inhale gratitude, exhale thanksgiving as we try to process life. And again, those are available to you after the service. Uh, They are right there on the floor. Uh, So make sure you come grab those. All right, so here we go. But we are jumping right back into our journey through Luke. If you're a guest, we just travel through books of the Bible. That's all we do. It's not real complicated, not real flashy, but uh, scripture is everything given for life and godliness. And so it is enough. And so we just chew through it, and and we've made it into Luke chapter 3 in our ongoing journey through. We're going to pick back up. So to set this off, maybe in context today, I'll simply say this. There's there's nothing more simple than 1 plus 1 is 2 in mathematics. There's nothing more simple than that. 1 plus 1 is 2. However, there's nothing more complex than 1 plus 1 is 2. All of math is built upon the concept of one plus one equals two. And so, I, you know, all of it flows out of it. And so today, as we look at this text, it may be one of those messages where you're prone to go, okay, yeah, been there, done that, seen that. Um, that seems like foundational work. And what I'm going to argue is the foundation of the gospel in John chapter 3, uh, I mean, Luke chapter 3, not John, we did that back in, I don't know, four years ago. Um, Luke chapter 3 is the foundation upon which all of Christianity and our eternal hope rests upon. It is the most simple, but it is the most complex element of of everything we study in Christianity. So we're going to look at that uh, together. So on the screen is going to be the fullness of the text. We don't get to do this a lot, but uh, we'll do it today. We're going to read the fullness of the text we're going to go through, and let's look at this together, and then I'll just kind of chew through this, and, and maybe we can see four things out of it. All right, so here we go. Picking back up, if you haven't been with us, um, <laughs> you may go, hold on a second, y'all have spent 10 weeks looking at the birth of Christ and birth of John the Baptist? Yeah, we have, we did, and it was a lot, okay? Um, so we've made it to Luke chapter 3, but so Jesus is born, John's born, the prophecy of Jesus, the prophecy of John, uh, Zechariah, um, Simeon, Anna, I mean, all of those things should be flooding our minds, and now we're getting to the point where um, 
Luke, uh, where Luke's going to say to Theophilus, hey, not only were they babies, um, and then not only did Jesus have this moment in the temple, but then John moved out. He, he's about 30 as well, so about 30 years old now. So we've just jumped a gap of about, you know, probably 15 years. And so busting on the scene is going to be John the Baptist before us today. And so it says this, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Idurea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, and Tetrarch of Abilene. I just made all those up. So if you're like, man, he really knows his languages. I, I just completely made that up. But if you say it with confidence, people are like, yeah, that's exactly right. I don't have a clue. All right, so here we go. Um, during the high priesthood of Annas, I think I got that one right, um, of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All right, so that's where we're at. That's where we've moved to in the text. So now we've got John busting on the scene. He's no longer a baby uh, who who had this... um, muted dad because he didn't believe the angel. He's now busting on the scenes, doing all the things that was prophesied about him. And, and I want to see maybe how this text is just, it's just remarkable. And I'm going to hopefully, if God's gracious, maybe say here's four ways that we see how remarkable this text is. And as you can guess, each of the four points will begin with a remarkable something. So let's look at this. First, I want to look at this. There was definitely in verses 1 and 2a a remarkable point in history. In the 15th year, in these seven people that are mentioned, this really is a remarkable moment in history that this John the Baptist pops onto the scene and begins to do this. This would have been somewhere, historically, around A.D. 27 to 29, all right? Really, it was the darkness before the dawn, and that's why I say it was really remarkable in scope. These seven names that are underlined above are littered with nepotism, evil, darkness. I mean, it is a, 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 a moment in history that's just marked by utter grossness. And and so these seven names not only are marked with nepotism and all this kind of stuff, but maybe the the most heinous part of the evil that was going on during this day or why it's so uh, remarkable is because politics and religion had become wedded together for power and wealth. Whereas before, and you may go, well, that, <laughs> that doesn't sound too strange. It sounds a lot like 2023 sometimes, you know. But you may go, well, that's not too odd. Well, take it back. Take back to the day. So here's what's going on. Um, religion had been its own thing. I mean, it stood completely separated from politics. And then politics kind of emerged. And now all of a sudden the two have wed together. It is a very unique time in history at this moment. And... My point in saying that is this, um, God's timing is always right, always.
always. And so even in this dark moment, it's going to be a remarkable moment that God's going to use unlike he would have used any other time. He chose this dark moment to bring John the Baptist forth and ultimately bring in his son on display. So he chooses this. And I bring that out just to say this maybe as a point of application and we'll keep going. God works in his perfect timing always for his glory. When he moves in his timing, it's always for his glory. And God just peered through the channels of time and looked and said, all right, this 15th year with these seven people who are absolute wrecks, I'm going to use them because ultimately I get more glory in this moment than if I would choose another time. God always, so if you've ever asked the question, I don't know why God's doing this right now in my life, here's the answer. Because he gets most glory out of it right now in your situation. And you go, no, 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 but, but my situation is tough. And my situation is hard. And what I would say is, in God choosing the toughness and hard moments of your life, it's ultimately for his glory. The question is, do you trust that ultimately God is getting glory in your situation, whatever you're in? He's always working for his glory in his perfect timing, which does correlate with he's always working in our perfect timing for our good. Our good, his glory in all things. He always does this. So it's this remarkable point in history. The lesson we can learn out of it is he's always doing this, even in 2023, right now, in your life. And then number two, we have this remarkable utterance that spews forth. So not only in this perfect moment, well, the next phrase is this. In this darkness, the word of God comes to John. Now, this is remarkable. I couldn't, I couldn't decide whether to use utterance or proclamation or declaration. And I don't know, maybe some of you wordsmiths could come up to me afterwards and go, hey, this would have been a better word. And I will note that and we'll put it down and we'll save that for later. But basically what I'm trying to get at is in this moment, God had been silent for 400 years. You realize that, right? Totally silent. And this was the moment, so it's remarkable, not just that he chose this time, but then his voice came out. So this little phrase, the word of God came, man, don't skip by that when you're reading your Bible. That's huge. The fact that the word of God came is huge. Since the closing of the Old Testament, which would have been Malachi. So at the closing of the Old Testament, the Lord had been silent. The last prophecy was this in Malachi chapter 4. A messenger will come and he'll prepare the way and he'll turn hearts of children to their fathers. Now this is remarkable because the word of God comes fulfilling that prophecy which is exactly what the angel said to Zechariah. Do you all remember that? The angel comes to Zechariah and says, hey, you're going to have a son. And first Zechariah goes, mm, that ain't going to happen. Which again, got him what? The mute button. <laughs> the angel goes, all right, you don't believe me. Whack, you can't talk. Boom. But he says, you're going to have a son, and that's what he's going to do. He's going to prepare the hearts. He, and, and so in this moment, not only do we have this remarkable history, but now this remarkable utterance, God comes forth and he says, hey, I'm here again. And um, John's going to be there to fulfill this. So in these 400 years, there was no prophecy. There was no scripture. There was no anything. So imagine that. Imagine. And I know this may freak some of y'all out. All right. I'm not afraid to die. I'm really not. 
I am terribly afraid of how I'm going to die. All right? That I'm not too cool about. Like, I don't want to drown. All right? I want to go out jumping out of an airplane, you know, with like a parachute and then it don't work or something like that. That's a cool way to go out, you know. Drowning, not so much. But, but here's the thing. Here's, when you go underwater, or really under anything, right? When you go underwater, there's that, okay, am I going to breathe again? But then there's also that eerie silence. You know what I'm talking about? You go under and you hear the little... Maybe you hear the ladder or something like that, but you can't hear anything. There's that, there's that deafening silence. This is what it felt like in those 400 years. God's not speaking at all. Nothing. Total deaf. People are choking. People are going, mm, we're under heavy weight. And so what happens when God doesn't speak is all kind of chaos occurs. What kind of chaos? Well, here's what occurred during those 400 years. Not only is God not speaking, not only is there no scripture, but the Jews are conquered by the Greeks, they're then conquered by the Egyptians, they're then conquered by Rome, the temple is then desecrated by three different people groups, a man is placed in charge who is a descendant of Esau, you remember our study of Genesis and Exodus, who ultimately become Herod the Great's dad, and this is where Sadducees and Pharisees come from. If you've ever read in the Bible, Sadducees and Pharisees, they emerge during this time. They begin debating, where's God? What's he doing? What? And and so that's how they erupt. And so you've got all this chaos going on. So why on earth would God, as Galatians 4 says, think that this would be the perfect time to show up? How, How could that be the perfect moment to utter forth his voice or proclaim his presence? Or like, why would that be the perfect time? Let me give you three reasons, I think, why, and then we'll keep going. Number one... Because in this moment, just from a creative standpoint, the innovation of Rome was unparalleled in its ability to spread the gospel. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of silence, Rome comes in and they start building streets. And they start doing all kind of creative things with architecture and all this kind of stuff. And so God allows in this dark moment these pagan people to come in and pave the way for the gospel to be spread unlike ever before. And God goes, ha ha, here we go, here we go. I know I haven't been silent, but I've been allowing Rome to build their roads so that I can spread the word like you've never seen before. So I think creatively, so God would choose it in that moment. Number two, emotionally. And maybe some of us need to take this question to heart, but a devastated people typically come to realize that they cannot save themselves. And in the midst of the devastation, God goes, ha, now their hearts are prepared. You ever thought about that? We don't need the Lord when everything's going right, do we? Everything's hunky-dory, I got it, boom, me and we're good, I'm good, God's good, blah, 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 blah. We don't need him. And we begin to rely on ourselves. And so God goes, all right, <laughs> you relying on yourselves, I'll leave you utter silence, 400 years of darkness, and then maybe you will see your need for someone to come in as a deliverer. I think that's why God chose this moment. You ever been in a dark? Mm, everybody's been in a dark moment. Are you in a dark moment right now where you're going, you know, I've tried everything. And nothing seems to be working. Maybe God has you there on purpose. 
so that you'll turn and go. I've been trying to figure it out. Maybe I'm going to have to let God figure this one out. It's a great place to be, man. So I think that's why he does it. And then culturally, again, there's this overwhelmingly dark culture. And an overwhelmingly dark culture is usually shocked by the exclusivity of Christ. And I would say that's exactly what's happening in our culture in 2023. You're beginning to see a culture that is incredibly dark. And in vogue is anything goes, do what you want, everybody gets there, blah, blah, blah. As long as you believe in tolerance and everything goes, then nobody's going to rock the boat. You step in right now in 2023 and say, hey, Jesus is the only way, he's the only truth, he's the only avenue, and you want to see claws come out? (laughs) Right? That was my claws coming out. (laughs) Like Wolverine. (laughs) comes out. And so God goes, this is the exact moment I'm going to step into. Everybody thinks everything goes. And so as I step in and go, hey, the only thing that goes is Jesus, everybody goes, whoa, what is that foreign teaching? And their ears are more prone to listen. God chooses this moment on purpose. And so my point in all that is just saying this, hey, just because God might seem silent in your life right now, in no way means that he's stagnant. He may seem silent, but he's always doing something. And in this moment, I would also argue, number two, that with the gift of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures in 2023, God's never silent. He's never silent. We have the Holy Spirit and the text, which is speaking every single time we open it and read it. Which is why at Safe Haven, we believe so much in the expository preaching of Scripture. Because when we crack open the text, the the Lord speaks. And so, God's not wasting your wilderness moment, if you will. Number three, we got a remarkable point in history. It's dark, it's crazy. This remarkable utterance, God shows up in the midst of the darkness and says, hey, here's my word. And then number three, he gives it to this remarkable man. Right? Which is the end of this section in in verse 2. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. This cat was something to behold. Let's walk through this. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but let's walk through this. Number one, he's remarkable because you'll remember he was confirmed by so many others before his birth. Unlike any other man born of woman, he is second only to Jesus, John the Baptist is. Here's some things said about him. In the angelic prophecy before he was born, the angel said to Zechariah, your son will be great before the Lord. That's, that's pretty remarkable. Then the people, when Zechariah was unmuted, you'll remember this, the people said to Zechariah, what is this child going to be? They were stunned. So it was remarkable to them. You'll remember Zechariah's response. He said, I'll tell you after he's unmuted, here's what he's going to be. He's going to be the prophet of the Most High. That's, that's pretty remarkable, right? Like, we're like, man, my son's going to be a great artist or baseball player or my daughter's going to be this or whatever. But nobody goes, my child is going to be the prophet of the Most High. That's pretty remarkable, okay? And then Jesus in chapter 7, verse 28, is going to say this, born of women, nobody is greater than John the Baptist. He's a remarkable cat. 
why is he so remarkable? Well, there's definitely nothing remarkable about his location. Why is this dude in the wilderness? It's a great question. Anybody ever thought about that? Why is this cat there? All right. Perhaps his parents died and left him no property, which would put him in the wilderness. That's what some people argue. Perhaps he is just a granola-eating hippie, right? I know all of you Birkenstock-wearing granola eaters are like, no, he's one of us. That's why he's there. Ah, maybe. Maybe that's why he's there. Or, or perhaps, or perhaps he's in the wilderness just because the Spirit led him there which would make more sense because that is the prophecy in Isaiah 40, that the one will come and he will be a voice crying in the, in the wilderness. So it's remarkable, not necessarily about his location, but maybe because this does fulfill the prophecy. Why else is he not remarkable? Well, there's nothing remarkable about his habits, and simultaneously there's everything remarkable about his habits. If you don't know who John the Baptist is, we've got to go to Matthew chapter 3 for this. Um, it, it, I don't know why Luke didn't include it. Maybe it's too much for Theophilus. But nonetheless, we know that he's taken down camels, which, which doesn't seem like that would be a hard thing to hunt. I don't know. I've never seen a wild camel before, but they seem like they would be easy to hunt. They're just kind of moping along, you know, like, don't kill me. You know, like they're, they're like, stop. Let me, you know. We know he's taken down camels or at least found one because why? His clothes are... Camel's hair, Matthew tells us, he's wearing clothes of camel's hair. Now, again, in 2023, you might be like, that sounds pretty cool, you know. Well, back in the day, that's not normative, okay? So he's wearing these clothes made of camel's hair, and we know he's diving into beehives for honey, and he's climbing trees for locusts because his diet consists of locusts and honey. He's an oddball. He's not going through Whataburger for combo number two. <laughs> I mean, he's slinging around. Crunch- he looks like Beetlejuice. Remember the movie Beetlejuice? I mean, he's, he's eating bugs and sipping on honey. Well, again, that's remarkable and kind of unremarkable at the same time. So what do we find remarkable? Here's what I find remarkable about him. There's no mention of God using him because he was somewhat monastic and always being still and knowing God is there. Let me explain that real quick and then I'm prove my, or say my point. I think a lot of times we get this notion of I am only usable by God if I be still and know. Right? If I back up, if I get down away from anybody else, I open my Bible, I read, I study, I pray, I sing the right songs, I do the right things, I don't do the bad things. I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, we almost try to become monastic. The only way God can use me is if I'm like this perfect Sunday school child. If I do all this right, there is zero mention of that's the reason that God used this man. None. What I find remarkable is the only mention that God used him was just as he was going, eating locusts and honey, he was available to be used. The question is not, do you have your proverbial stuff together? The question is, are you available to be used? 
Are you going, God, use me. Use me despite me. Not just in the moments where I'm down trying to hammer out my holiness. (laughs) But when I'm going. When I'm doing. When I'm eating my locusts and honey. Right? In other words, let me put it in 2023 language. Are you usable when you're eating your ham and cheese from Jimmy John's? Or do you even ask the question? Lord, will you use me? He's usable wherever he's at. And the beauty of this is that God can use anyone, anywhere, at any time. That's what's remarkable about John. Is that I can look at John and I can identify, not because I eat bugs, although I'm not above it if you bet me. Slap some money in there and I'll eat the worm, okay? Um... What's remarkable is that God can look down and go, man, I can use that guy. And like right now, you're going, mm mm, mm mm, mm mm, mm mm, mm. God can't use me. Because you're going, Troy, you don't know who I am, and you don't know what I've done, and you don't know where I've been, and you don't know where I'm going. And I would look at you and go, you're right. I don't know that. But by gosh, I know who I am. <laughs> And I know where I've been, and I know what I've done, and I know where I'm going. And if God can use me, he can use anybody. And he uses this cat. Here's the key. The key to usability from God's perspective is absolutely God's sovereign choice. Yes. There was nothing usable about Paul on the road to Damascus as he is headed to kill Christians. God just goes, I'm going to use Paul, and there's nothing Paul can do about it. Wham, bam, going to use you. Bloom. So that is one key to usability from God's perspective. But here's the key to usability from our perspective. Are you sold out to your story, or are you sold out to his story? Because when we're sold out to our story, yes, it's all about me. <laughs> you know the song, um, the, it's all about you and all this is for you. you A lot of times our song is, it's all about me <laughs> and all this is for me. As if you would do things my way. I alone am God forever. Y'all don't know that song, do you? <laughs> right? <laughs> That's how we live our lives a lot of times. Rather than going, hey, at my workplace, Lord, would you be gracious to use me for your glory? How many of you asked that question on Monday? Lord, would you use me for your glory today? That's the availableness. Lord, use me. In the gym, at Kentuck Ballpark, at the bank, in the grocery store, at the gas pump, cutting the grass, doing the whatever. Are you going, Lord, I am a wreck. But in your sovereignty, would you be gracious to use me for your glory? That's what he's looking for. So, let's wrap it up. Remarkable point in history. In the middle of darkness, a remarkable utterance. God shows up in the total darkness and says, Hey, after 400 years, here I am. This remarkable man. And I'm going to speak through this dude eating bugs. He's eating critters. He's eating bass bait, okay? I'm going to use him to proclaim this remarkable message. This remarkable message of repentance. We won't read through all of that. But he's, 
He goes to all the region of Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. I'm going to read that again. And then I'm going to contrast it with the culture today. He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Somebody should have told John the Baptist, Brother, that is not how you build a big fancy church. You are not going to pack the pews, John the Baptist, walking around telling people that they need to be repentant to find forgiveness. You're not going to build a big sanctuary. You're not going to build a big parking lot. You're not going to have the crew. You're not going to get on TV. Somebody should have told this brother that. But here's the key. John the Baptist didn't care about building a big church. He just cared about building a big kingdom and proclaiming Christ as the exclusive way there. That's remarkable. John the Baptist didn't come in going, hey man, here's ten ways to have a healthy family, and here's ten ways to have a healthy pocketbook, and here's ten ways to have a healthy whatever. He, didn't, he came in, bust on the scene, and this remarkable message was, here's what you need to know. Repent! And you can find forgiveness. Let's walk through that real quick. I told you at the beginning, one plus one equals two. The most simple message there is. One plus one equals two. Life-changing. Repent and believe. It's the most simple. It is the foundational level of everything. Repent and believe. It is what the kingdom is all about, church. And so let's look at this. This message of repentance. Number one is this. That without repentance, no soul will ever be saved. Without repentance, no soul will ever find salvation. Now I want to... I want to explain why this is remarkable today, real quick. Number one, because there's some dangers. This is, what to me, so this is personal. This is the danger to me of emotionally charged mass baptisms. I know. I'm going there, and it's on video, and all this kind of stuff. It is what it is. That's what scares me to death about emotionally charged mass baptisms. We got the baptistry. Boom. One person gets saved. We drum up a good song. People start crying. And we say, hey, you don't want to get in a car wreck and die on the way out of here. You better come jump in this thing. Well, then everybody's like, well, that's, that gum, that's right. I don't want to do that. You know, so let me go jump in. Boom. And then a friend comes and jumps in. Then, well, if that friend came, I'm going to go jump in. And before you know it, you got 500 people coming in. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem is nobody's talking about repentance. We're just jumping in a pool. And if we just jump in a pool and we're not focused on repentance... The pool means nothing. You might as well just hopped in your bathtub. <laughs> you got baptized as you cleaned your shower off. There's nothing there. And there's, there's danger in that. If there's emotionalism without repentance, I'm going to do this, then all baptism becomes is what? A work. It's just a work. If I climb the ladder, then Jesus will be happy with me. And John's going... Repent! This is what you need to hear. Let's bring it back to the culture. You go, Troy, that, I don't know about that. That seems a little bit unfair. Buddy, they did ceremonial baptisms left and right before John was on the scene. It was all kind of baptisms. And he says, no, 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 no. Repent. 
So there's a danger in that. Number two, I would say this. That's also the danger in the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel of, hey man, if you'll just believe and and say Jesus' name, then you'll score the touchdown. Right? This is is where somebody scores the touchdown. They go, hey, first and foremost, I want to give God all the glory for that touchdown. Because out with him, I couldn't have got that touchdown. It's prosperity gospel. You know what you never hear? Hey man, y'all just got beat by 50. And you're not going to make the playoffs. What do you think about that? I've never once heard somebody go, well, first and foremost, let me give God all the glory for getting whacked by 50. (laughs) Not one time ever. Because in that moment, Jesus becomes this lucky rabbit's foot, right? And that lucky rabbit's foot has nothing to do with salvation. You just might as well get a horseshoe and go, I'm trusting in the lucky horseshoe. That's the danger. Because if we go to Jesus for a better bank account, for a better marriage, for a better whatever, we never come to repentance. And John is going, repent! Repent! That's the remarkable nature of his message. This is also the danger in performance-based salvation. If I go to church, if I read my Bible, if I pray the prayer, if I go on the mission trip, if I give the money, if I wear the shirt, if I do the things, if I slap the thing in my hallway, you know, that has a Bible verse on it, if I do those things, then God will be happy with me. And John goes, no, (laughs) here is what you need, repent. Admit that you're a sinner. Call to mind that you don't measure up to the standard of God's holiness. That's what John is screaming. And ultimately, I would argue biblically, that's the only way anybody will ever be saved. If you don't come to Christ first and foremost with, I am a wretched sinner, then baptism, works, whatever, mean jack squat. So John begins there. Repent. So here's my question. Man, are you... And I, like, so I can say this, I'd say this with genuine love and concern. Like, like I fear that maybe there's some of you in this room that your understanding of salvation is you are saved because you did X, Y, Z. Like that terrifies me. Because if your notion of salvation doesn't begin with, I'm saved because I'm a wretched sinner and Christ is the only Savior. If it's got anything else in there, then you've bought into a false gospel. Maybe you went and got baptized because somebody else got baptized. I'm saying, forget all that. (laughs) Have you come to the end of yourself and I'm a wretched sinner? And Christ is the Savior. Or maybe you're like, no, no, I'm a Christian, man, because I walk around going, hey, this is why I'm blessed. This is why I have the car. This is why I have the house. This is why I have the clothes. Because God is the one who keeps showering blessed. If your notion of salvation is what you have, then you don't have Christ. You just have stuff. And that stuff will never get you there. I'm pleading with you. So maybe in this room, you've just never had somebody say, here's the message you need to hear. Repent. Say, I am a wretched sinner. 
and Christ is the Savior. If you do that today, then you can find salvation. Or better yet, as Boaz proclaimed, salvation has found you. Here's the twofold nature of repentance. Have you turned away from your sin? Not, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to do, have you acknowledged that you don't measure up to the standard of the fullness of the holiness of Christ? I fall short. So I turn from that. But it's not repent and behave. Maybe that should be another bracelet. <laughs> Stay on script, Dad. This is where I get in trouble. Put a quilt over my head, all right? But I think a lot of times we believe that that's salvation. I repent and then behave. That's not the gospel. It's repent and believe that despite my behavior, Christ behaved perfectly. He's my substitute. That's salvation. And out of that will come a life of worship. I've offended God's holiness, but Christ is not. Do you believe that? Man, if you don't, come find me afterwards and let's hammer that out. All right? Have you turned away from your sin? Repent, but also turn to Christ, which is another part of repentance. I turn to Christ, and that's the good news. Works is, I'll pull it off. Worship is, Christ pulled it off. And so, therefore, I will exalt him in all aspects of my life. Two totally different things. So I told you, number one, there was this message of repentance. Number two, there was this message of forgiveness. And that is the hopeful home run of John's message right there. The home run is not that he said repent. The home run is that he said that by repentance, you will find and can find forgiveness. That's the home run. Uh, I'm going to open Pandora's box. Goodness gracious. Let's do it anyway because I just feel like I need to. John's baptism for the theologians in the room. Was John's baptism adequate to save? Man, that is a crazy question, isn't it, Bo? It's hard to think about. It wasn't. It was inadequate to save. Because all men have to be saved by Christ, and John didn't go to the fullness of Christ. He's proclaiming this pathway to forgiveness. And so, it's an interesting thing. He only included option A, being repent, turn from your sin, he doesn't walk into the exclusive transactional substitutionary work of Christ, which is what we turn to, right? So uh, he does repent, A, turn from, but not turn to. He's going to push towards it, and we'll see the fullness of the gospel in a second. This is why Jesus' baptism has the power to save both flesh and spirit. Now, what do I mean by that? John's baptism was ceremonial. There was this washing like the other ceremonial that would push you towards something, but the fullness came in Christ, which is the fulfillment, fulfillment of the ceremony, if you're tracking with me. Right? I know we're talking to a population here, but I, anyway. This is, I guess, the simplest way I could say it. This is why Nicodemus was blown away when Jesus busts on the scene. Because Jesus says, hey, John baptized this way, but man to be saved must be born not only of flesh, but also spirit. And Nicodemus goes, that doesn't make any sense to me. When Nicodemus very well might have been baptized by John, for all we know. There's something different there. So, again, I know that's opening Pandora's box. If you want to talk about that more, but it's a pretty neat thing here. But the proclamation was, hey... 
Through repentance, we can move towards forgiveness. We can find forgiveness. It'll be the path that leads us to forgiveness. Christ comes on the scene and turns around and goes, Hey, I'm it. Ta-da! You found it. I'm the end of that pathway, if, if you will. Nonetheless, the cool things about this is this. John's message was not in a location that was prime. It was not a prime location. He's proclaiming this at the Dead Sea of all places. Stinky, dead things. There's no life. Um, but his message, why it's remarkable, is it was that dead sinners can find life through the coming Christ. That's the hope. And this is the same hope-filled message we gather on each Sunday. This is why we gather. This is why we sound like a broken record. A message of repentance, a message of forgiveness, and a message of mission. And this is truly that life is all about Jesus. One plus one equals two. I know. Here was the rest of the message. Well, the Lord is coming. In other words, I'm just the MC. Christ is going to take the main stage. So prepare all the paths. He's the equalizer of everything. Inanimate objects line up before him. Animate objects line up before him. And all repentance clears the pathway to that. And then number four, salvation rests exclusively in him. Close out today. We've been commissioned with this exact same message as believers. The exact same message. If you're an unbeliever in this room, repent and believe in Christ today. And then I would argue, be baptized. Be baptized. Crucial element. So maybe there's some people in this room like, hey man, you're, you know what, Troy? I've, I've repented and I believe, but I've not followed through with that. Incredibly important. As an outward expression of an inward change, number one. Number two, because it's commanded. It's commanded of the Lord. This is one of the two ordinances given. Take communion, and often as you do this, and be baptized. So maybe you're in this room going, hey man, I need to... One plus one equals two. Yes, I've never followed through in baptism. Well, why not today? This sucker is warm right now. But don't come because it's emotionally charged. But if you find yourself in repentance, hey, jump in this sucker with your camel's hair shoes on. <laughs> and go, ah... I don't measure up Christ's enough. I've got to let people know that I'm in on this game. Right? But if you're a believer, scream this one plus one message to others this week. Repent. Believe. We are many voices, but we got the same message. Right? Christ has prepared us to be laborers for the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, Labors are few. Let's be the laborers. Perhaps it's your time to explode on the scene in the wilderness. The band's going to come back up. I think if I could summarize all of this, and I know, like I feel it. <laughs> I knew, I knew, I knew last week I didn't know what the Lord was going to do, so I'm not going to share it. But I knew last week, going through it, 
I was like, man, that'll be fun, and that'll be funny, and that'll be... And then, of course, there were some things that happened. I was like, oh, well, I can't even believe that happened. And I sure hope Randall edits off of the film. <laughs> um, but I knew going in, man, this, there's some neat stuff here. That, that could be fun. And I knew coming in today that it would feel like one plus one equals two. I knew that. Yeah. Jesus, repent, believe, be baptized. And here was my prayer. God, make believers see that repent and believe is the most important life-giving message we've ever heard in our lives. And make unbelievers see that they can do that today and their lives be changed forever. Believer, is your heart full of the fact that through repentance and belief, Christ has saved you? Does that blow your mind? Are you like, eh, wah, 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 wah? If the message of the gospel is wah, 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 wah to you, I don't know if it's awakened you unto salvation. Unbeliever. Like today, your eternity can change. I'm a sinner. Christ is the Savior. I'm trusting in you. So to summarize, I said I was going to summarize. That one, a summary. Here's the summary, Andrew. The pins and needles message of the gospel, when the Spirit takes it and uses it, becomes a massage chair to our souls. And I hope the gospel is a massage chair to you. But if it's pins and needles, trust today as I bang things and let it massage your soul. All right, that's all I got. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, thanks for John the Baptist. What a crazy life to live. Just walking around screaming. Hey, repent and believe. I wonder if we would eat locusts and honey, Lord, for the rest of our lives, if that was the commission you gave us. Or if we're too enamored by combo number three at McDonald's to see the infinite, remarkable nature of repent. Yeah, so for believers in this room, Lord, that we'll be stunned, stunned that at some point you brought us to the point of repentance and we'll be stunned that you awoken our heart to respond where we really did respond in human response to that message. We'll be blown away by that. And God, if there's an unbeliever today, save them. Save them.